You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 7. Remember growing up on that movie and um, just loving it. It's one of my favorites. Um, I love that scene um, because it, it really sticks closely to the the biblical narrative that we'll see in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. So go ahead and turn there. Um, excited to share with you this section of the book of Exodus and how God's power is put on display and how he works and moves to, to show who he is, uh, both to the uh, Egyptians and the Israelites, um, that he works and moves in such a way to, to do a miracle here that really sets the stage for um, the plagues that are coming. Just to give you a quick update as you're turning and getting uh, your notes ready for today, we um, continue to update you on the expansion of our church facility um, we are starting to work more towards a definite timeline of that. I met last week with a local church uh, here in Sonoy about their um, willingness to let us meet in their facility for a couple of weeks in the afternoon after their service while all the construction is taking place here, and they were very willing to do that. And so I went through their facility to make sure that it could accommodate what we would need. Um, so that's been approved. Um, we're working timeline-wise with contractors in hopes that we would start the construction kind of early March, um, and then probably have two or three weeks where we would need to adjust our schedule so that everything could get done here, and then hopefully be back in our facility with everything completed uh, over the course of maybe three weeks. So we're excited about that, excited about um, the possibilities of that, and so uh, we'll continue to keep you updated along those lines. Exodus chapter 7 Uh, Verse 8 is where I want to start reading for us today uh, for us to see our text. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Last week, we saw that charge that God gave to Moses in the midst of his excuses and hesitancies that last charge for him to go and do what he was being commanded to do. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And we talked about how God particularly highlights the need for us to be faithful, not effective, right? The the calling is for us to be faithful. He he doesn't call us to produce certain spiritual fruits in in the efforts that we give, but we're to be faithful in our efforts. So God tells Moses to go and to be faithful, to to challenge Pharaoh to let his people go, uh, Moses continues to be hesitant about the fact that, hey, he's not going to listen to me, right? He's focused on the effective piece. Will I be effective in what you're calling me to do, God? And God continues to reassure him, it's not about your effectiveness. In fact, you're not going to be effective in this. You're not going to see Pharaoh listen. He's not going to listen to my word. What I've called you to is to be faithful. And so we talked about trusting and obeying God, remembering that he expects faithfulness from us, and that we don't have to worry about the effectiveness piece, Um, And we can remember that he controls our circumstances in ways that are superior to any human control, right? So we talked also last week 
about how we want to remember that God works miraculously in the ways that he sovereignly controls things. Meaning, we say that God is, is better than kings and leaders of this world. But what we mean by that is not that he's just uh, a superior ruler in the same ways that they rule, that he rules in ways that no human can, right? We talked about how uh, God can, can work and move in uh, human hearts. And there's not a human on this earth that can control other people's hearts, Uh, that God's sovereignty extends beyond just the the realm of what earthly rulers can do. He can work in human hearts, and then he can work at speeds that humans cannot, right? We talk about how you can, in a moment, see things drastically change, where in the New Testament, you have Paul who's killing Christians, and now he's completely submitted to Christ and wants to create Christians, right? He wants to share the gospel, build churches, and see God's kingdom grow in a moment's time. Like things radically change in Paul's life. And so we talked about how God and his control is far superior than Pharaoh's and any other human leader because of the ways that he can control. So we talked about last week kind of as a conclusion, are we seeking to obey what he has commanded us to do? Or are there aspects of our heart that remain hard like Pharaoh's? We don't want to be guilty of allowing our hearts to become hardened. Hebrews 3 warns about it, that we don't give in to the deceitfulness of sin. Now we come to the section in Exodus chapter 7 where uh, Moses and Aaron will appear before Pharaoh once again. They've been rejected once. They came to request for, for Pharaoh to let the people go. God uh, or Pharaoh denies that. And so um, on top of that, he made the work harder, right? He took the straw away and said, make bricks without straw and really began to oppress the Israelites even more. Now Moses and Aaron are coming before Pharaoh once again. Our summary sentence for today. Our superior God always swallows inferior counterfeits, which gives us great responsibility to maximize our obedient responses to him who is real, while making sure we are never deceived and hardened to feel other gods can satisfy. Our superior God always swallows inferior counterfeits, which gives us great responsibility to maximize our obedient responses to him who is real while making sure we are never deceived and hardened to feel other gods can satisfy. For our kids, our God swallows his enemies, making it clear we should follow him and nothing else. The picture that we have here is God swallowing the competition. Um, he, he, he shows his superiority to the Egyptian gods. They are, they are no comparison to him. And what we have in this section and in the coming sections as we start to look at the plagues and More than likely, we're going to look at them in groups of three initially until we get to that final plague with the Passover. And so in the coming weeks, we'll see uh, God's superiority over the Egyptian gods. But what we have starting here in the throne room, as the miracles start to occur, we have the invisible cosmic war coming into the physical realm, right? We know there's this behind-the-scenes war that exists in the spiritual world that we can't see every day. We don't see the, the, the parts and the pieces necessarily playing themselves out uh, as specific as we do here. We know that God and Satan are at war. It's been that way since the book of Genesis when uh, sin entered into the world and God stepped in and intervened and begins to communicate that he is going to create enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? That he is going to rescue mankind back to himself, that Satan has not won a great victory, Right? He has not won the victory. He has not won the war. And so this cosmic war is kind of unfolding behind the scenes. We see this in Ephesians chapter 6. You'll remember Ephesians chapter 6, 
verse 12, the need to put on the armor of God. Why? Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a real spiritual war that takes place behind the scenes, and it becomes viewable for us here in this text as the tension between God and Satan becomes viewable through the characters of Israel and Egypt, through the characters of Moses and Pharaoh, we see that cosmic war playing out. Now, the goal of the plagues, and this section sets the stage for the plagues, the goal of the plagues is that they may know that I am Yahweh. That's what God communicated to us last week, that the plagues are coming so that everyone knows that he is the one true God that they may know. Who's the they? We've said it's both Israel and Egypt who will come to know him in this way. He wants everyone to know that he is God alone and there is no other. So this idea of no other gods becomes a dominant theme over the next several chapters as we'll see as the plagues play out, as the judgment on the Egyptian gods occurs. And remember we said that that's why the plagues happen in the ways that they do. It's why God chooses the, the methods and the means that he chooses. He is judging the Egyptian gods. He is judging those things that the Egyptians would have looked to for their safety and their comfort and hope. And he's helping them to see that none of those things can help you. None of those things can keep you secure. That the, the, the gods that you worship have no authority over those things. The dominant question then that's playing out as the plagues are unfolding, as the Egyptians and the Israelites are looking on, right? You have the two key figures, Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, who are at war with each other. The Egyptians and the Israelites are the bystanders kind of watching. And the question that's being asked is, who is your God? Who will you follow? Who will you obey? Who will you submit yourself to? And I would say it's the most important question that you will ever answer in your own life. Who is your God? Who will you follow? Who will you submit to? Who or what are you choosing to serve? Who or what are you submitting yourselves to? Who or what are you allowing to shape your decisions? Now, the basic recurring outline of the plagues that we're going to see in the coming weeks starts here in this section. It's seen in this preview of the plagues that takes place in this, this setting with Pharaoh and the staffs and the snakes. And it's that Moses and Aaron obey everything that God tells them to do. And they keep obeying. They keep obeying. Maybe even as some hesitancy and doubt creeps in, they keep obeying. I mean, uh, we don't know exactly what their reaction was. We don't know if they anticipated uh, Pharaoh's people throwing down staffs and them turning into snakes as well. I mean, the movie does a job of picturing kind of Aaron looking at Moses and going, hey, I thought this was our trump card. Like I thought like the snake was going to get it done and, and they can do this too, right? And then we see it play out where the, the snake uh, swallows the other snakes, right? So maybe there was some doubt and hesitation even as it unfolds. We're going to see that they turn the Nile River into blood and so do the Egyptian magicians, right? And we'll see like that's, that's not helpful, right? Like, hey, we can do that too. It's like, stop doing that. Like we don't want the Nile River to be blood. But they, they can replicate what God is doing for a, for a time period uh, but they can't, they, can't, they can't stop it. They can't change it. They can't reverse it. Moses and Aaron stay obedient through all of this. And that gets highlighted plague after plague. Moses and Aaron obeying what God tells them to do. We also see that God shows himself over and over again to be superior to the particular God that that plague is addressing. 
He does this, and it's repeatedly said, so that you'll know that I'm God. The implication being, so that you'll also know the God of this area, right? Whether it's the Nile River, whether it's land or sky, the God of those areas is not the real God. You can pray to him all you want to, but it won't be reversed. We're also going to see that Satan seeks to counterfeit God's work to minimize the impact of what Moses and Aaron do right? Like, hey, let's detract and take away from what the God of Israel is doing because we can do the same thing, right? Like, like don't be impacted by what, what this miracle looks like because we can replicate it. So they're trying to minimize the impact of the miracle. Satan's working behind the scenes to do that. And then we're going to see that Pharaoh's heart continues to get harder and harder and harder. He becomes less and less convinced that God is Yahweh, that he is the one true God, He continues to get hardened through the whole process. Now, I think it begs the question, why is this God debate really even a debate? Why is it up for discussion? Why does it take so long for even the Egyptian counselors to Pharaoh to start appealing to him? Hey, let's for real let the people go. Like, we can't defeat this God. Why does it take so long for them to realize that? How could the Egyptians really believe in their gods in light of everything they're seeing around them? Well, I think more than likely we can see that their gods probably were acting out in limited ways and with limited displays of power. Now, what do I mean by that? I believe, particularly in the Old Testament, when we talk about false gods, we're not just talking about completely made-up deities that they never heard from or never saw anything get done by. I think that Satan and his forces were permitted to work in demonic ways where they were tapping into dark power and seeing the fruit of dark power in their life, right? As they're making ungodly sacrifices to some of these gods. I believe that they were seeing miraculous things potentially being done that kept them in deception towards this bondage, right? I mean, think about the scene with Elijah and the the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? I mean, like, think about what's really proposed, Elijah shows up to these prophets and says, I got a bet for you. Like, I bet that I can get my God to call down fire from heaven and your God won't. And they say, hey, we'll take you up on that bet. Which means there was some level of them that believed that that was possible, that they had seen something that would make them think, hey, we can actually potentially do that. Like, I have a hard time believing that they had never seen anything miraculous from these gods they pray to, to think that all of a sudden, we're going to be able to call down fire from heaven. I mean, I believe in the one true God, and if somebody made that bet with me, I don't know that I would take them up on it, right? Like, I don't know that I would take somebody up and say, hey, yeah, let's go, let's go out to the park, and I think I can call down fire better than you can, right? Like, I'd be like, eh, I think my God can do that. I've read about him doing that. I don't know that he would do that for me right now. But these guys like jump on it. They're like, hey, let's go. Like we think we can do this too. And God stifles it, right? Like I think and believe that in the Old Testament, there was massive deception happening. It's why I also believe that what we see in the New Testament and even in the book of Revelation, this is where you can differ from me and that's, that's totally fine. But this is how my, my, my understanding of scripture gets processed is that in the New Testament, Jesus talks in the book of Revelation that, that Satan is going to be bound at some point in a ways where he can't deceive the world like he used to. Some people believe that's still to happen, that Satan is still unbound. I believe that Satan is bound in particular ways, the ways that are listed in Revelation, that he can't deceive the nations like he used to. 
And I see his power being greatly limited in ways that Jesus talks about where you bind the strong man so you can go into his house and take all of his stuff. That's what a thief would do. You would bind the owner and you would take all of his stuff and he can't do anything about it. And that's the picture of the gospel. Jesus going in and rescuing people who have been in bondage to Satan's kingdom. He's saving them from darkness into light. Right? And so I think here in the Old Testament we see Egyptian gods, Pharaoh, the people, like they're, they're seeing dark power at work. And God works and moves and shows that they do not really have any power. That he is superior to any dark power that could come on this earth. Anything that Satan can produce, God is far superior to it. That's the message that we see here in verses 8 through 13, that God is better than anything this world offers. He is superior. And not only is he just superior in ways that he defeats it, he swallows it. He engulfs it. He, he completely overwhelms any other power on this earth. That brings great comfort and hope to us who are on the right side of following him. That's our God that we're reading about. The same God that we worship and serve when we leave today is the same God who was swallowing other gods in the Old Testament, completely overwhelming them, right? Gives us great hope today as we follow him. Our superior God always swallows the competition. We have a responsibility to obey him, to obey him quickly and thoroughly. He's real. Even though our feelings may trick us into thinking that the things of this world are better, we fight against those feelings with what's true and what is real. And it's that our God is superior to those things. Let's look at two points of application from the text. Number one, we maximize our worshipful obedience to the superior God. We need to maximize our worshipful obedience to this superior God. That's what God's doing here. He's revealing himself as the superior figure in the cosmic war. There's a real war taking place. There's real warfare taking place. Satan and his forces, right? God and his rescue plan. That's happening behind the scenes and it's constantly playing out in history. We just don't always see it as clearly as we do in the text here today. He reveals himself as the superior figure in this cosmic war. He's the real God and he's about to step forward. And this revelation process of everyone knowing that he is Yahweh, that he's the one true God, begins with an assault on Pharaoh as the serpent leader, right? I don't think it's by accident that the, the Egyptians have adopted what is depicted as the representation of Satan. This is the form that Satan takes, right? He's described as the serpent. He's described as the great dragon. What do we see in Egyptian culture? They love snakes, they're scared of snakes, and yet they, they had this fear of snakes, this worshipful experience towards snakes. I don't think that's by accident. They're worshiping the wrong God, right? They're following the God of this world, and they're in darkness, and they're blinded to it. And God shows up on the scene and says, I'm going to attack the sovereignty of Pharaoh. And you're going to cast that rod down, and it's going to turn into a snake, and it's going to engulf the other snakes that are thrown out against it. It's an attack on Pharaoh. It's an attack on the Egyptian culture. It's an attack on everything they know to be true. The snake choice illustrates that attack on Pharaoh's sovereignty. And what happens here is a preview and summary of what happens in the following chapters. Every plague that happens is about God swallowing up that God. It's about the one true God showing that he's better than the false God. Time and time again. So what happens here? It's just a big overview summary of everything that's going to happen in every other plague that comes on the scene. 
God's going to show himself to be the superior God. He's worthy of our worship and obedience. Look what Deuteronomy chapter 4 says. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Moses is appealing through the words of God to the people. And God speaks and says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of other nations by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. What's Moses saying? And what's God saying here? He's saying, look, there is no other God like me. Like, tell me of another story of a God who rescues in this manner. There isn't. He says, I've done everything to show you the type of God that I am. And now the call is to obey him, to follow him, to give yourselves to him, because there's no other God like him. He uses the Exodus story, the great deliverance story of the Old Testament to show there is no God like him. For us as New Testament believers, we don't just have to rely on this story, right? We get the New Testament version of this. We get Jesus coming to earth and rescuing us, not from, from Egyptian slavery, not from Roman slavery as the Israelites had hoped for, hoped for, but from slavery to sin, right? And he gives himself and he sacrifices himself on the cross. He comes back to life three days later and he calls us to follow him. And there's no other religion with another God who pitches that same message, are there counterfeits? Are there similar things that, that look like Christianity? Absolutely. But all of them are rooted in the satanic gospel that you work your way to heaven. All of them. Even the ones that try to, try to claim Jesus as part of their religion, who try to incorporate him and infuse him. It's, it's a works-based religion. Every single one of them pitch a God to you who is not fully satisfied until you earn favor with him through your performance. Man, we could rewrite this today and say, what other God does everything for you so that relationship with him is possible? What other God does everything possible to rescue you when you were dead in your sins, when you were an enemy in darkness, and he saves you to him? That's the God we get to follow. That's the God we should want to follow because he's unlike any other God, any other religion. They're all the same. Ours is the one that's different. Because our God says, you come to me because of what I did, not because of what you do. This is the superior God, and we should maximize our worshipful obedience to him. 
Some want to cast doubt on God and, and tell us that we shouldn't follow a God like this because look at his wrath and look at his, his response to Egypt. Like, how can he be a loving God? And, you know, some people criticize and say he's more like a cosmic jerk here. He's trying to annoy the Egyptians with, with these elements that he chooses. And I would argue that to question God's wrath here is to minimize man's sin. It's to minimize God's holiness and to minimize his sovereignty. And what scripture says is that, that we, are, we are dead in our sins and in, in, and in deserving of his wrath, right? The fact that he doesn't it just extinguish the Egyptians completely, that he gives them opportunity to repent as part of his grace. His holiness demands his response to sin. His sovereignty allows him to work and move in ways that he determines are best, not having to rely upon us to tell him. Man, he is working and moving in a superior way in this scene. And he's going to choose plagues carefully to judge every level of comfort, comfort and hope that the Egyptians have. I told you, it's the gods of the Nile River, the gods of the land, and the gods of the sky that he shows cannot protect the Egyptians. Remember, this is first-time revelation stuff for these people, right? Like, we're, we're, we're New Testament Christians looking back on this, and we're like, man, I've, I've, I've heard this story for so long. I've seen the Charlton Heston movie. Like, I, I know the Ten Commandments. I know, like, how this plays out. This isn't new to me. This was new for them, right? Remember, their understanding of God was Abraham followed this God, Isaac did, Jacob did, some of his kids did, and then, and then we haven't heard from this God in like 400 years. We've been in slavery for 400 years. Is this God even real? Like, where is he? Has he, has he abandoned the covenant? And so now God shows up on the scene again, and he is for the first time really showing how much greater he is than all the false gods. And it sets the stage for what we're going to see later in Exodus chapter 20, right? Exodus 23, our kids are learning this in Kids Club. We've been going through the Ten Commandments, and the dads have been reviewing in Kids Club Rewind. And that first commandment is, no other gods before me. If you just isolate that and read that, it's like, why not? But you remember in context, like, God's just shown that there really are no other gods, right? So don't worship inferiority to me. Don't, don't, don't try to give yourself to other things that I swallow up is the context. I mean, when you open up and read Exodus 23 in their context, God says, command number one, no other gods before me. The response should have been, well, duh, that should be easy. We've just seen your power. We've just seen that there are no other gods. That's what he's setting the stage for with this revelation. He's making it known that he is superior. Number two, our responsive obedience is to be both immediate and instinctive. The call is for us to see God as superior to all other options for comfort and hope in this world and to give ourselves in submissive obedience to him. Immediate, instinctive. It's supposed to be who we are. It's supposed to help define who we are. We're known by our love. We're known by the fact that we keep his commands. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 We've been looking at 1 Thessalonians. We're, we're getting ready to go into 2 Thessalonians in our small groups. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. As Paul is highlighting the conversion of the Thessalonian church, these believers, how do we know they're believers? Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I mean, their community was engulfed in other things too. They were given their worship and their affection and their, their obedience to a whole host of things. 
then the gospel shows up in their community. They're called to follow Jesus, and their response is to follow him and to turn from idols. That picture of repentance, turning from sin and turning to something new, turning to follow the living God. That's the picture that's given to us. It's a sign of true conversion. Moses and Aaron open up the text here in in verse 8 by being obedient to what God has called them to do. Even though there's probably still a little bit of hesitancy, a little bit of doubt, like what's going to happen here? God tells them, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded their responsive obedience. It was immediate, and it was starting to become instinctive now. It's just what they're going to do. They keep obeying the Lord. Now, we get away from that when we're in the the wandering in the wilderness, right? We we get that first picture um, of Moses not doing what he's been commanded to do when when he ends up striking the rock for water when he was supposed to speak to it. But the predominant picture that we have of Moses moving forward is that he's consistently doing all that God's commanded him to do. And I think what's interesting here is that we see when we start being obedient, we start seeing how God has equipped and empowered us to do it. They cast the the rod down. God works the miracle. They're doing their faithful part. God makes them effective now in this, just like he does us when we become obedient to him too. This is to be our response to God's word as well. Immediate, instinctive. Think about how we've talked, uh, I think we were talking heavily about this in the Gospel of John when we were studying it, that we wanted as, as Christians here at Sovereign Hope, we wanted to see our faith maturing in such a way where the time gap between troubles entering our life and our turning to him in faith and trust shrinks right? That, that things happen in our life, and, and what we're prone to do is to go through the stages of uh, rejection and grumbling and complaining and dissatisfaction, and then people come into our life, and they call us back to the things that we know to be true, and, and finally we get around to, hey, I'm going to trust a sovereign God that he knows what he's doing. But a lot of times for us, there's this gap of time where a lot of other things happen besides trusting him. And we talked about how we want to see that shrink, We want to trust him quicker. That's a sign of growth and maturity is that when things happen to us, we're more prone to trust him faster. The same is true with obedience, that we see that time gap shrink between when we're called to do something and when we actually do it. And that it becomes instinctive so that as we're living our life out, we don't have to be called out by people to do the right thing. We know the right thing. It's a fruit of being in God's word and and studying and knowing what he says. We're being obedient to him in an instinctive way. That's not what Pharaoh gives us, right? Pharaoh doesn't model that for us. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did just as the Lord commanded, and Aaron cast down his staff, implying what we saw in the movie clip is that Pharaoh didn't like what he got, right? Let my people go. That's not happening. He says, prove it. Do a miracle that your God is real. That triggers Aaron casting down his staff before Pharaoh. And it became a serpent. That would have been enough for me, I think. Like, I like to think that my heart would be soft enough in that situation to say, all right, you win. Like, that is crazy what you just did. And I hate snakes. Please pick that back up quickly and turn it back into a staff, right? Like, that would have been my response, I think. And then I would have been like, take your people right? 
and get out of here and, and, and don't come back again. Like, that would have scared me to death. Pharaoh has a totally different response. He doesn't give obedience to God here. It says he summons his wise men and his sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret acts, which again makes me think that Pharaoh had 100% confidence that this could be done by his people, meaning that maybe they had conjured this type of power before. Maybe they had some type of deal with Satan, and they were so in tune with the dark arts that, that, that demons had been able to communicate that, hey, we, we will give you this power when needed. I don't know. But he calls upon these people totally confident that he's not going to look like a fool, because Pharaoh would have looked like a fool here, right? Think about it. Wow, like if we've never seen anything like that before, and I think my two buddies can come do that, New Testament calls them Janus and Jambres, they come out and throw their staffs down, they turn into snakes. I mean, I think Pharaoh had full confidence this was possible. And it happens and it plays out like this. There's no responsive obedience like we'd like to see, what we're called to as Christians. Instead, there's doubt and there's minimization that's given by Pharaoh. Let's, let's minimize what's happening here. Let's, let's, let's create a less of an impact here by showing we can do the same thing. We need to maximize our obedience to the superior God. When we see him as superior, we will turn to him faster and faster in obedience. To keep doing that, we need to, number two, minimize Satan's counterfeits to avoid hardening. We need to minimize Satan's counterfeits to avoid hardening. Satan throws these counterfeits out in order to minimize God's sovereignty. We want to minimize his counterfeits, though. Satan seeks to mimic God's work with counterfeit gods and counterfeit offers. We'd be crazy to believe that Satan doesn't have real power We'd be even crazier to believe, though, that he has absolute power. Satan certainly has power. We are warned as Christians to be careful that he roams about seeking to devour like a lion. Right? I told you, I believe he's bound and that he cannot deceive the nations. I do not believe that Satan is removed from this earth completely. He's certainly active, and he certainly works to deceive. But, man, we have the Holy Spirit countering that, and we have the Holy Spirit opening eyes to the glories of Jesus Christ. He has power but he does not have absolute power, right? Pharaoh's wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians, they're able to replicate on some level the same miracle worked by Moses and Aaron. Now, I told you, I think they really do turn them into snakes. I think those staffs turn into snakes. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a group of, there's a group of commentators, and, and I don't think it's wrong necessarily to, to think this way because it still shows God is superior. It's possible they're just really good illusionists, just like we have today. Like we have magicians that do things that, that look like they've done something really miraculous and they haven't, right? There's even been some studies and examples seen in Egyptian culture even today where some of these guys are such good snake charmers where, and I read about this in multiple books, where they can, they can create some tension in a snake by pinching a nerve in the neck right behind the head area to where it renders it paralyzed, to where basically you could carry this thing around and it looked like a staff, even though it's a snake. And then when you throw it to the ground, the jarring of it would, would kind of reinvigorate it and it would become um, with motion again, right? So did they have like paralyzed snakes in their hands that looked like staffs and then they throw them down and they become alive again to where everybody that was looking would have thought, hey, you just did the same thing. Was it a sleight of hand where they, they maybe threw the staff down and threw a bunch of you know, smoke bombs down and like all of a sudden they throw a snake in there too and pick up the staff real quick and it looks like they did it. I don't know. What's clear though is that Pharaoh believed it happened, right? 
And what's clear, too, is that snakes were gobbled up by Aaron's staff. That's what's very clear. How the other snakes got there, we're not totally sure. What is obvious, though, is that God's superiority is seen over whatever these magicians are able to conjure here. It's also worth noting they can only imitate, they can't innovate. They can't reverse anything here. They can't turn the snake back into a staff and tell Aaron to pick it up. Like, get your tricks out of here. Like, we got more power than you. They can't innovate. They can't create. They can only corrupt. Nothing that Satan uses in this world is his own. Think about Satan's greatest temptations and his greatest ploys. None of it he creates. He just corrupts God's good creation. Nothing has Satan brought into this world that's new and innovative. He's taken every one of God's gifts and tried to corrupt it. That's how Satan works and moves. And he does that in the plagues here. He can't do anything new. He can't do anything to stop what God's doing. He can only try to replicate or mimic it. Real influence, but no real power outside of God's allowance. Satan does have the power to deceive, but only until God says enough. Look what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says. We see real demonic power in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, man, Satan and his forces work to deceive. And they're doing some deceiving right now, but there's even greater deception to come when God says it's okay to do that. When God releases the restraint and allows deception to come over the whole earth, then it'll happen, but only when God says it's going to happen. And then God's going to come in the scene with Jesus, who's going to extinguish all of it with his breath. I mean, the greatest deception, like the greatest evil work, Jesus is going to come on the scene and say, that's it. It's over. It's done. That's his superiority to all other gods, including the the gods that may present themselves through Satan and demons. Real power to deceive, but only limited power underneath God's overall sovereignty. Think about the gods that we're tempted to respond to as counterfeits today. His ploys haven't changed, Satan. He's still attacking truth by imitation. Just pause and think for a second. Where are the temptations for both you and for our kids, there's real temptation to follow other gods. Now, we're not probably tempted with, with golden idols to give our lives to, but there are religious counterfeits that are out there, right? There's imitation Christians, Matthew 13 tells us, where the wheat and the tares have been sewed together. The picture being that you can come into a church and there's some people that are believers, there's other people that look like believers, but they're not. And we won't know until the day of judgment when Jesus separates. There's imitation Christians. There's imitation gospels out there. Galatians 1 talks about how we can't go back to false gospels. 
There's imitation ministers. 2 Corinthians 11 calls them people who, who look like light, but they're darkness. They look like they're leading people to salvation, but they're leading them to death. Imitation ministers, imitation Christ, the Antichrist, is, is Satan's greatest attempt to imitate God's work. There's counterfeit religions out there. I told you there's ones that look just like Christianity on the surface, right? You look at the, the Mormon religion. You look at um, others that, that kind of imitate, right? Jehovah's Witnesses that try to, try to make you feel like, hey, we're, we're kind of all the same. And we're nothing alike, really, when you look at the details. We're not. And yet it can feel very similar. And, and there's, a, there's a movement of, of I, I remember reading like uh, the, the, the percentage of Southern Baptists who were even leaving conservative Christianity and, and being swayed and deceived towards some of these other religions that look very much like us. Very much like us. I remember uh, some of you would have sat in this Sunday school class at Mount Gilead when I was teaching as the youth pastor. I remember showing on a Sunday morning a, a video clip that would have looked like your typical Southern Baptist video Jesus and some disciples talking and kind of playing out like a, a biblical story. And we got done with it. And I said, hey, what do you guys think about it? And, you know, I got some, you know, some of your normal feedback about, you know, watching a video like that. And then I hit play again and showed that at the end it was produced by the Mormon church, right? Like, hey, this is different than us, but we're so easy to receive it and think like we're the same, Man, it's, it's different. It's counterfeit. It looks like what God's doing, but it's not. And Satan's good with his deception. Think outside the religious realm, though, and think about how Satan deceives us with counterfeit gods in our culture. And we are so prone to be uh, consumed with power and pleasure and profit. Right? These are the three things that, that, that Satan gets us with oftentimes. When you think about Christians who fall, they fall because there's issues with power. It's issue with pleasure, and it's issue with profit, with money. Right? Those are the things that God gets at our hearts with. And for our kids who are starting to, to come through middle school and high school, like, hear me on this, because there's going to be a strong push for you to be consumed with what job are you going to get, who are you going to marry, like, like what are you going to do with your life, and those things are good. You need to be thinking about those things. I was sitting at Chick-fil-A studying yesterday, and this kid who I think is a Sounded like he was a sophomore in high school. He was sitting there with this, with this lady who I, I think was maybe his school counselor. I don't know. It wasn't his mom because she kept referencing mom and dad being in this kid's life. But she was basically talking to him about what are you going to do? Like you're getting, out of, you're getting out of high school in two years. Like what car are you getting? What job do you want to get? What courses are you selecting next year? Where are you going to college? What do you want to pursue as a degree? Like all that was being talked about. Those are all good things. You get into high school, you got to start thinking about those things. But youth, hear me on this, they cannot become your God. The job that you get, the amount of money that you make, the, the individual that you marry, those things cannot be your God. They're a bad source for security and hope. Those things will fail you. Man, as much as I want every one of our guys and girls to marry good, godly Christian guys and girls, man, your spouse will fail you. They'll fail you. All of us had that realization where we went into marriage thinking like, man, this is awesome. Like our whole life's going to be like a honeymoon. And there's that realization. It comes at different points, but you wake up and you realize my spouse isn't perfect, right? My spouse isn't perfect. Spouses make a lousy God. Jobs make a lousy God because they can be yanked in a moment's notice from you, right? Your, your, your salary doesn't make a very good God. That's not where you find your security and hope. It can be yanked from you in a moment's notice. 
And yet that's what Satan feeds our kids. It, it feeds it over and over. This is where you find satisfaction and security. It's in power. It's in pleasure. It's in profit. We have to hear those things and we have to minimize those counterfeits in our life. We're tempted to try to go after power in our life, to assert authority in our life, to, to think we can do it better than the boss that's been placed over us. We're tempted to pursue pleasure outside of God's bounds. We're tempted to, to, towards dishonest gain. We have to minimize the, the, the feelings that we have towards those things and to see that God's superior than all of it. And we follow his design for all of it too. We follow his design for all of those things. Lastly, number two, our ongoing obedience must be tied to remembering what is real versus acting on what we sometimes feel. Acting on what we know to be real versus acting on what we sometimes feel. Pharaoh is seeing what's real play out before him, right? Like, it's, it, it's, it's obvious. The Israelite God is better than our gods. And yet what he feels is that he doesn't want to give up his power. He doesn't want to give up his authority. And so he keeps trying to minimize what God's doing. And then we see this swallowing occur here before him. Like, that's what's real. And in the Egyptian culture... The swallowing piece, you would have believed that by swallowing another object, you absorb all of its power. You acquire everything of that object, right? So when, when the staff of Israel swallows up the staff of the Egyptians, what's being said here is that the God of Israel is the God of Egypt, whether you believe it or not. That's the message that's being communicated here. Our God is your God, whether you submit to it or not. It's not our God versus your God. Our God is your God. That was what Pharaoh was supposed to respond to. He missed it. He hardened himself to it. The truth is, is that our superior God always swallows inferior counterfeits. The question is, will we act on reality and see that or be deceived emotionally? Look what 2 Timothy 3 says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty... Youth, listen to this, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we see all three of the counterfeit gods there, right? Power, pleasure, profit, Having the, appearance of, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Looks good, but it's not real. It's a mimic by Satan. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Man, it should be obvious to us who the superior God is. He's swallowing up the competition. Think about it. Aaron, his rod swallows the Egyptian rods. The same word is used when the Red Sea is told to swallow the Egyptian army in chapter 15, verse 12. Same word. Plagues start with something being swallowed, and it ends with something being swallowed. Our God is superior. 1 Corinthians 15, 1554, we're told that our greatest enemy, death, is what? Swallowed. And Jesus swallows it with an empty tomb. 
He's been swallowing for a long time. All the competition, all the counterfeit gods, they submit to him. Even our greatest fear of death is swallowed up in victory. And we need reminders of this because we're prone to revert back to our old ways of worship and trust, right? Joshua 24, this is after Moses is gone. This is after they've been conquering the Canaanites. Joshua, on his deathbed, basically has to say, put away the Egyptian gods, people. They're still carrying them around. They're still thinking that like, hey, pleasure and profit and and power, maybe that's where we put ourselves. He says, put the Egyptian gods away. Our God is better. Same message in Galatians, New Testament. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to want be once more? Remember, the, Egypt, the, the Israelites kept saying, let's go back to Egypt and be their slaves. And we read that and we're like, what? Why would you ever want to go back and be enslaved to what you've been rescued from? We're the same way in the New Testament, though. If we're not careful and we don't remind ourselves regularly that our God is superior, we'll go back to the things that we used to be enslaved to, the things this world is enslaved to. We need to be reminded to come out of that. Our application for today, don't see the work of God and be guilty of ignoring it like Pharaoh. Instead, obey. Act on reality. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the end of that deception passage, verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's people who are guilty of feeling themselves towards something versus trusting the truth and believing what's real. God sends them strong delusions so that they get condemned for it. I put in my notes here to end it. God wins even though Pharaoh doesn't respond. God always allows deceptive work to occur when it needs to harden somebody's heart for his glory. He wins here. Like we could read this and think, man, like God did everything he could and Pharaoh didn't respond. Remember, God's already told us Pharaoh's not going to respond. He's going to use that for his glory. God still wins here. Don't miss that. He swallows the counterfeit. We need to respond in obedience to him. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you that you are superior to all this world offers. Help us to be reminded of that regularly. Lord, we're tempted with power, with pleasure, and with profit constantly. Both as adults and our kids are starting to see that too as they grow up. Lord, as they start to turn their attention and in their age towards what am I going to do with my life? And what am I going to work a job as? And what, what kind of money am I going to make? And who am I going to marry? Who am I going to pursue relationship with, Lord? Help them to see that those are not gods and that they are not their God themselves. They don't get to choose those things arbitrarily as though they get to choose whoever to marry or whatever to do with their life. Lord, help them to filter all of that decision-making through what do you want for them? Help all of us to filter those type of decisions through what do you want for us? You're our God. The jobs that we work, the the relationships we have, the responsibilities given to us, those are all things we use to worship you and to serve you. They're not gods, even though Satan would have us think otherwise. Lord, help us to see through that deception and lie. 
Help us to respond in obedience to you in such a way where it becomes instinctive and immediate in our life. Thank you for being a God who swallows the competition. Help us to see that. Even when we feel like things are happening in ways around us that, that doesn't show that, Lord, help us to remember you've already swallowed the greatest enemy, death. You've given us victory over it. Help us to see victory on a daily basis as we submit ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.